If you want to grab your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4, we're uh, turning the corner into a new chapter. So thankful for Brian Wade last week, uh, looking at the back half of uh, Exodus 3. We kind of looked at it from two different perspectives, and so I thought that was really helpful. I was really uh, grateful for his work in the pulpit uh, last week and uh, thankful for some time away as well. And uh, ready to jump back in. This is a uh, story, this whole Exodus story is about God building a people. God is forming and shaping and maturing a people. And uh, we learn from that process. As God's doing that to the nation of Israel, as God's doing that to Moses as a leader, uh, there are all of these principles where uh, God's uh, shaping us and forming us. And so we're going to really jump into that today as we get into Exodus 4. This is a wide-ranging narrative with all kinds of uh, different parts to it, some parts that maybe make some sense, some parts that are going to be really, really odd for you probably along the way. Uh, And so we're going to seek to try to understand what God's saying to us in that as he builds a people. But, but I want to start by reminding you of the culture that's around you. I think that can be a helpful thing. Uh, Kevin talked a little bit about that idea of that we uh, see things for so long that we kind of uh, lose perspective on them. Uh, the, the saying goes, if you want to know what water is like, don't ask a fish because they don't have any idea, right? They're swimming in it all the time. And we're swimming in our culture all the time. And so there's a couple things that you probably know, but I want to um, kind of remind you of as we uh, think about this text, particularly as it relates to us uh, in our current environment. Um, Almost every survey in the United States says that roughly 65% of people in the United States of America uh, identify themselves as Christians. I want to be careful the way that I say that because um, I think our felt experience, certainly my felt experience, is not that 65% of our country is pursuing things like loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you and, um, and being one as uh, the son and the father are one and uh, pursuing peace as long as it depends on us and all of these things that are part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But 65% of people name Christianity as their religion of choice, kind of where, where they are. Um, in a way that um, maybe helps kind of delineate that a little bit, the Barna Group has started to uh, survey with a different category. So um, the majority of the surveys just ask, what's your religious affiliation? But the Barna Group has begun to ask a question about resilient Christians. And their definition of resilient Christians is basically those who have uh, chosen to follow with their life. People who are uh, connected to a church body with regularity, who are uh, reading the scriptures and praying, who are giving, who are loving people in intentional ways. Uh, People who are following the commands of Jesus, living in the, the lifestyle of Jesus. And the latest survey from the Barna Group puts that number, at least in one demographic uh, section, at 10%. So 10% versus 65%. There's uh, obviously a real big gap there. And I I think that gap is part of our um, felt experience of trying to figure out, like, why is it that everybody seems to be moving away from those who are trying to follow the, the commands of Jesus, and yet there's this preponderance of people who name the name of Jesus, Here in York County, uh, most surveys were a couple years old in these surveys at this point, but most surveys say that roughly 40%, 39.8% of people identify as what they, they call religious, meaning that they attend a church gathering or some sort of a religious gathering on a regular basis. 
So the first thing that's notable in that, this is not the sermon for today, is that six out of every 10 people that you encounter, statistically at least, are not regularly attending a church gathering in York County. That's another sermon for another day, but something to keep in our mind. Uh, But the other part of that is it may not be a simple majority, but a plurality of people are uh, religious, and the majority of those, 35 of those 39%, are uh, some connection to Christianity. So that should mean that there's at least some traction for those who are desiring to follow Jesus. These aren't just people who name Christian on a survey, but who regularly attend a church gathering. And yet, again, felt experience is that there seems to be a gap between those who are saying, I'm going to do the things that Jesus calls me to do. I'm going to live the biblical sexual ethic and the biblical moral ethic. I'm going to um, give and uh, engage my finances in a way that reflects the scriptures. I'm going to engage my work and my community in a way that reflects the scriptures. It, it seems, again, like we're kind of swimming upstream as it relates to that. Why? Why is there this, this, um, this tension? I think that's the heart of Exodus chapter 4. At the core of Exodus chapter 4 is the God of the universe coming to Moses and saying, there's a way to follow me that will be recognizable, and there's an acknowledgement of me that will not be recognizable. And that, that's the heart of what we're going to dig into. We're going to actually listen to the entire chapter. This is way longer than we typically would read in, uh, in a church gathering. But I think it's really important to get the entire context. And so I'm going to invite you to listen in whatever way you listen the best, however you can put yourself into this story. So that may be closing your eyes and imagining. That may be uh, l- looking at Bill as he uh, reads for us. It may be following along in your text, however that works the best. I want to ask you to listen to this story as it unfolds. So Bill's going to Come and read for us Exodus chapter 4. Some of you are thinking, oh no, Bill has a stage prop. (laughs) Don't be too, too fearful. Then Moses answered, but behold, They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? Moses said, a staff. And God said, throw it on the ground. And I would have said, but Lord, if I throw it on the ground, that means I'll have to bend over and pick it up. (laughs) And... That's one of my least favorite things to do these days. Back to Moses. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to Moses, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it was 
restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, uh, I, 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 I'm not eloquent either in the past or, or since you have spoken to, um, uh, let's see, you, you know, the servant, servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now, I won't continue to imitate that because it'll take too long. And Brian has a good sermon for us. Then the Lord said to him, who was it that made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with you, with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you will do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey. I think there was more than one, probably. And went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met 
him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Amen. Thank you, Bill. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we turn our hearts to your word, this is an ancient story that we can easily get tripped up in the details of. Would you help us to see how we fit? Would you help us to understand more about who you are and the glory of your goodness, your presence with us? And God, would you shape us we long to be more like you. We want to be people who are in the flow of what you're doing in the world around us. And so, God, would you speak your word? May my words that come from my flesh fall to the ground and be forgotten, but may your words that come from your spirit penetrate our hearts, change us. God, may your word bear up and grow up and bear fruit. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So there's a lot to this text, lots and lots of stories um, that it contains in it, one of the most uh, difficult to interpret little vignettes in the entire Old Testament, and so uh, all kinds of fun stuff we're going to dig into. I, w- I want to look at three primary ideas. I, I want to look first at the idea of disruption, the God who disrupts us. God comes to disrupt Moses. God comes to disrupt us. What's that look like? So disruption, obedience. God calls Moses to obedience, calls us to obedience. And then ultimately covenant. There's a covenantal love that God has over Moses, has over us, and that we're invited into. And so we're going to press into that. So disruption, obedience, and covenant. So we start in verse 1 with Moses, who is a completely different person than the Moses we found in the middle of chapter 2. If you go back to Exodus chapter 2, Moses is full of his youthful energy, idealism, and self, right? He, he can do it. Moses has this thing figured out. Moses is ready to, one Egyptian slave master at a time, release the people from slavery, right? He's just going to kill one guy at a time. He's going to uh, unite Israel by uh, seeing all the people who are fighting and bringing them together. He's got all of this uh, passion and all of this vigor, all of his energy. He's, he can do it. And that's not the Moses we find in verse 1. In verse 1, God's in the middle of talking to Moses, and Moses says, I'm really not the person to do this. Like, what if they don't listen to me? I'm I'm probably not the right guy. All of the youthful energy, all of the idealism has kind of drained out of Moses, and what's left is this kind of um, uh, dependence that Moses has moved into. And the first thing I want you to see is that that process must happen for people to be used by God. 
Now, let me say carefully what I said. I'm not saying that really fantastic, impressive things can't be done by people who have a lot of energy and a lot of passion and are kind of full of what they can do. There's really impressive things that can happen. But to be used by God, to be truly used by God to do eternal things, we have to get to a place where we recognize that it's not us, that we can't do it. And Moses finally got to that place where he recognized, I can't, I can't do this. But like most of us, Moses had slipped from the youthful idealism, the passion that he had to kind of go do it, into um, what I'll just call being stuck. He just had been wandering Midian with sheep for 40 years, you know, as you do. He just wandering around looking at sheep. And he's gotten to a place now where Moses, by the time God shows up in the burning bush, Moses is 15 years collecting Social Security. Like, he's been doing this for a while, right? Um, He is... uh, we, we don't get record of anybody else being there, but my guess is Moses is well into retirement at this point. There's a couple of young bucks who are actually running around with the sheep. He's got the staff because he's leaning. He's, he's doing what they call supervising, right? Like he's just like, he's, he's chilling. He's 80 years old. Like he's, he's done, right? And so God shows up and, and God says, Moses, I want to use you to deliver the people. And Moses is got to be thinking, like, I want to see the Israelites delivered, I want to see my people set free, but can't you use somebody else? Like, I'm kind of stuck here right now. Like, I'm past my prime. I'm, I'm done. I, I'm glad for you to work. I just would like you to do it with somebody else. And there's a lot of us, regardless of age, who find ourselves in that position, who get to a place where we just say, like, I I'm into what's comfortable, I'm into what's steady, and I don't really want to move out of this. Like, I'm, I'm good right where I'm at. I, I I'm, would rather, um, I, I want you to do all kinds of crazy work. I want you to do all the good stuff. Do, go do it, but just use somebody else. Like, I want to see people led to Jesus, but I'm not really the person. Like, I want to see people discipled. I hope somebody does that. I'd really love to see ministries working and people blessed and uh, people built up, but I just don't really have any energy left. And so maybe it's because of age. Maybe you just kind of feel like, yeah, I've kind of aged out of this. Like, I'm just, I'm beyond this now. It's, it's past my time. Or maybe it's because of some kind of past sin, something in your life where you're coming to God and you're saying, don't you know? Like, I, I can't be used. You know how broken I am? You know how messed up I am? I can't be used. Or maybe it's just a current life struggle where you're saying, like, you know what I was thinking last night? Do you know what I'm thinking right now? Like, I can't be used by God. I'm broken. I'm all messed up. Or maybe it's purely just a life station. Like, there, there's too much going on right now. I can't, now is not the time. There may come a time down the line where I'm going to be able to be used, but now is not the time. We find ourselves stuck. And it's in between the stuckness of Moses and the youthful idealism where uh, Moses thinks he can do it all himself, that God meets him. And he says, it's good that you can't do it yourself, but it's also important for you to recognize you still can do it. Christopher Wright, in his commentary on Moses' leadership, makes an interesting observation. Listen to the way he says it. God called into one of the greatest leadership tasks in in history a man who did not want to be a leader at all, who resisted it as long as he safely could, and who continued to feel inadequate to the task for a long time, that is God's preferred way. 
People who want to be leaders and yearn for the status, the symbols, and the power of leadership usually make very bad and dangerous leaders. Typically, people who long for leadership, particularly in the church, don't have a sense of the weight of leadership, don't have a sense of what that means. Moses has gone from one extreme, feeling like he can do all of it, to another where he said, I don't want to do any of it. And in the middle of that, God says, no, I, I, I'm calling you. I specifically want to use you. Moses is saying to God, like, they're not going to listen to me. I've tried already. Remember, I'm not a good Israelite and I'm not a good Egyptian. Nobody wants to listen to me. I'm nobody. And we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but God's response is so like not 21st century North American, right? Like you, you would expect God to say, we would say, Moses, what are you talking about? You're the only Israelite who knows Egyptian fluently. Like, you're great at Egyptian. Like, you know the ins and outs of the palace. You were well-educated. Like, you're, you're the perfect candidate. Like, we expect God to say to Moses all those things which are true. But God doesn't say that. God's like, yeah, they probably won't listen to you. You're probably right. But that's actually not the point. <laughs> like, the whole point is that I'm going to use you, not that you're capable you're actually not capable, but I'm going to use you anyways. And he says, Moses, I, if you will obey me, I will use you. And so now we have this section to, in two different parts where God's calling for obedience from Moses. And, and I want you to kind of picture what's going on here because Moses has said to God, God, I, I don't think they're going to listen to me. And God's response is, they probably won't. So I'm going to give you some signs now, these are not parlor trick kind of signs. Like, we, we think of it as like, um, Moses is going to go in front of Pharaoh and be like, Let, watch me pull the rabbit out of my hat. Like, I got this thing. Like, look, woo, now you should pay attention to me. That's not what's happening here. These are signs that are intended to teach both Egypt and Israel as well as Moses. So let me walk through them. First one is the staff. I, I wasn't scared of you bringing a prop. I was scared it was going to become a snake. I was, that was really the concern. Um, so uh, Moses first has to throw the staff on the ground, and it becomes a snake. And Moses does what any smart shepherd does when he sees a snake, runs the other way, right? That's all of us would be like, ah, no thanks, I'm out, right? And so Moses is scared, and God says to him, grab it by the tail. Now, I don't know much about snakes, and I'm thinking that's a good thing because I read Genesis 3 and I don't think we're supposed to know a whole lot about snakes. I think that's kind of the way it's supposed to work. Um, but then again, I walk around with a bunch of devices with an apple with a bite out of it. So what do I know about Genesis 3? Anyway, um, so uh, Moses throws the staff on the ground. It becomes a snake. God says, grab it by the tail. What I do know about snakes is that God has made them so that they can very quickly whip around from front to back. So grabbing a snake by the tail seems to me to be the height of stupidity. Like, why in the world would you do that? And Moses, as a shepherd, absolutely knows that. So there has to be some, like, argument, right? Don't you? I think there's a section not recorded where, uh, where God says, grab it by this tail. And Moses is like, I don't know if you remember the way you created snakes, but that's a really bad idea. Like, that's not the way to do it, right? Maybe they had that. Maybe they didn't. Anyway, Moses grabs it by the tail, and when he does, it becomes rigid and then ultimately becomes uh, the staff once again. So what's being taught? Well, what you may or may not know is that the snake is a really big deal in Egypt. 
Um, when the Pharaoh puts his crown on, I don't know if that's like the first thing in the morning or maybe he sleeps with it, I don't really know, whatever, but the Pharaoh has his crown on. Uh, on the front of the crown is a cobra uh, expanded and ready to strike. The snake is the symbol of the empire of Egypt. And the snake is uh, kind of this, this um, metaphor for the power and the strength and the agility and the quickness of Egypt. So when the snake is on the ground and God says, Moses, grab the tail of the snake, and then it becomes hard, there's this uh, reminder of the fact that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart, but ultimately it's in Moses grabbing the, the tail of the snake where the snake will be tamed, that it will become the staff of God. In a fascinating way, God is teaching through this sign. But what's he teaching Moses? He's teaching Moses, sometimes I'm going to ask you to do some things that are hard, that don't make any sense, like grabbing the tail of the snake. Like sometimes God asks us to step into things in obedience. This is obedience grounded in faith. No good shepherd grabs the tail of a snake. But when God says, grab the tail of the snake, if I believe that he's God, I grab the tail of the snake. And so Moses does. That's sign number one. Sign number two God says, take your hand, put it in your cloak, and then pull it back out again. If Moses was afraid of the snake, he is terrified when his hand comes out of his cloak. Because uh, advanced leprosy is a death sentence. Like, at that moment, as Moses pulls his hand out of the cloak, he's, he's as good as dead. There is no cure. There is no solution. This is the plague of the ancient world. And in a fascinating way, Uh, Egypt had put all kinds of resources, uh, all of the most intelligent people in Egypt into trying to figure out how to stop leprosy, how to cure leprosy. And they had had no success. And so Moses pulls his hand out, his hands full of leprosy. God says, put your hand back in the cloak. That's the fastest I bet that Moses ever obeyed God. (laughs) Like, put your hand back. Okay, okay, okay. Pulls it back out and it's it's cured. It's gone. What's he teaching? Well, just like the Israelite people are rotting away in slavery, this hand is rotting away, and in just that quick, God redeems it. God changes it. There's an image here of what's going to happen with the people of God. But there's also a reminder to Pharaoh, all that Egypt has, all the strength and all the power and all the intellect and all the resources of Egypt have been put into fixing this thing, and you couldn't do it, but God did it in a second. And there's a reminder to Moses. How many times do you think he has to do this little trick? Like over and over again. At least the end of, uh, of Exodus 4, he had to do it again. And there were likely many more times along the way where he had to put his hand in, pull it out, and have that moment of terror. Like if this doesn't go away, I'm dead. I'm done. He puts it back in and hopes, right? Hopefully God's going to do it. Hopefully he's going to work again. So Moses, again, learning obedience through faith. Third sign. Different kind of sign because this one's geographically dependent. So instead of Moses doing it, he describes it to, 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 God describes it to Moses. So he says, if they don't listen to the first two, take a cup of the Nile, go before Pharaoh and pour that cup of water out onto the ground. And as it hits the ground, it's going to turn to blood. Now for Egypt, this would be the most profound of the signs because the Nile is quite literally the lifeblood 
of Egypt. It's the, the centerpiece of Egypt. It's where all of their prosperity came from. Every year, the Nile would bring in all of this fertile soil into uh, the, the area of Egypt, and they would uh, have prosperity because of the Nile. If the Nile turns to blood, quite literally, God is cutting the life off of Egypt. So that would have been profound. But think about this from Moses for a second. Moses is called to go into the most powerful person in the known world. He's supposed to call Pharaoh and all of his people and Israel and all of their elders. And he's supposed to take a cup of water from the Nile, which is water. And he's supposed to start to pour it out. And it's still water. And he's supposed to trust that when it hits the ground, it's going to become blood. How many of you want that job? Because what's, what, what could happen, at the very least, if it doesn't turn to blood, there, it's a very embarrassing moment, right? Like, like look at this, guys. <sighs> yeah, so what? Like, who, who cares? But um, probably far more than an embarrassing moment, it's another death sentence. Pharaoh's like, ha ha, great trick, guy. Take him away, right? That's it. So if God doesn't come through, this is a costly act of obedience, and you have no idea. Moses, Moses cannot know that it will be blood until it lands on the ground. And so he starts to pour it and hopes. What's God going to do? How's this going to work? Here's the point. Moses, over and over again, is being called to obedience through faith. Um, you need a Dallas Willard quote. You haven't had one for a couple weeks. It's a good time for a Dallas Willard quote. Listen to the way Willard uh, talks about this in Life Without Lack. He says, one of our greatest needs today is for people to really see and really believe the things they already profess to see and believe. Whew. Knowing about things, knowing what they are, being able to identify them and say them does not mean we actually believe them. When we truly believe what we profess, we are set to act as if it were true. Acting as if things are true means, in turn, that we live as if they were so. So what's Willard saying? He's saying that there's this dramatic distinction between knowing something and really believing something. And the distinction is in action. If I really believe it, I'm going to act according to it. What? What does it mean that 65% of America checks the box that they're Christian? It means they have a knowledge of God, that they know what the Bible is. They know who Jesus is. They know a, a, a structure of faith that may or may not have any real impact on their life. Knowing without believing. Moses is being called to obedience that comes from believing, not just knowing. He has to be willing to grab the snake by the tail, put his hand back in the cloak and back out again. He has to be willing to pour the water, knowing that it's water and waiting to see what God's going to do. When Moses passes the test, he passes the test because he's willing to step out in obedience grounded in faith. So what's that look like for us? Well, the really difficult question that I've been wrestling with all week, so I'm going to pass it to you. You're welcome. Is... What's it look like in our lives to be obedient to the call of God? Let me ask it in another way. Are there actual markers in our life, distinct evidence that says, I believe God? Not just that I know about him, but I believe him. 
I'm being obedient. I have obedience grounded in faith. Because here's what I believe is a, a, a really difficult truth of the Scriptures that I think we have to come to grips with. If there are no marks of obedience in our life, and, and please hear me, I, I don't mean that we do it perfectly. I mean that there is a desire for obedience that works itself out in obedience in various ways at various times. It, if there are no marks of obedience in our life, I think we call ourselves Christian at great peril. Because knowing about God does not make us a Christian. Coming to church on Sunday morning does not make us a Christian. Following Jesus as Lord is what it means to be a Christian. And that means when he says something, we do something. Now, again, not perfectly. We're going to talk about grace in just a minute, and we're going to understand that there's a, there's a, a spectrum in here, but there's, a, there's a, a, a heart behind following after Jesus, and it's not always easy, and it doesn't always make sense. Grabbing the tail of the snake is not the most convenient thing for us to do. It's not the most logical thing for us to do, but sometimes it's what God calls us to do. Is there obedience in our life grounded in faith? So that was part one. Part two, as it comes to obedience, is um, the the test that Moses fails. Let me uh, read it for you, and then we'll talk through it. This is starting in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak." But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. We're going to stop there. So uh, in, in English, this reads through very quickly in a way that um, maybe is not uh, as readily apparent as it is in the Hebrew. But when, when Moses comes before God, he says in, in, in English, the translation is my Lord, which just sounds like a, a way to address God. And it is. But that word in Hebrew is Adonai, and it's translated uh, sovereign one or sovereign God. So, so here's what Moses just said. He comes to God. He's gone through these three signs, and now he comes to God and he says, Oh, sovereign one, the one who created all things, who's all-powerful, who's able to do everything and all things at any time because he's all-powerful, I think I'm too broken and I'm going to mess up your plan. That doesn't make any sense. Like Moses is coming to God and he's declaring what's true about him. You are sovereign. And then he's saying, but I'm really a big deal, God. Like I'm really broken. And I don't really think you can use me. Which is in a backwards way making Moses God and God Moses' servant. Now in grace, God's response to Moses is um, like... (laughs) Who do you think made your mouth? Like, who, who do you think? Do, do you think I don't know that you're hard to listen to? I've been listening to you. Like, you're hard to listen to. Like, you're a pain in the rear end, man. Are you kidding me? Like, I know that. But I'm going to go before you. The point is not you. The point is me. You said it. Adonai, sovereign one. I'm the one going with you. I, I love it. He says, I will be with your mouth. <laughs> That'll make Moses feel better. I'll be with your mouth. Don't worry. Like, God's saying to him, he's giving him a way out. He's saying, Moses, think about what you just said. You just called me sovereign one, and then you put yourself in the number one position. Like, back up a little bit. And so Moses says again, Adonai, sovereign one, send somebody else. 
and God's anger rises up against Moses. Why? It's not because Moses is afraid. It's not because Moses doesn't think he can do it. It's not even because Moses doesn't want to go. The anger of God against Moses is because of the gap between the revelation and the belief. Moses said, Adonai, you are the sovereign one. You are the Lord. You are the the king of the universe. And then he said, but your ways aren't right. Send somebody else. You're wrong. The anger of God rises against Moses because he's revealed himself to him. Moses knows at that point what very few people on the face of the earth know. He knows the power of God, the sovereignty of God, the greatness of God. And in the midst of that revelation, Moses has said, yeah, but it's not enough for me. I'm a really big deal. I'm, you don't know how messed up I am. Alec Motyer, in his, he makes a real kind of pithy statement, but I love it. It's, he says, it's his omnipotence that matters, not my incompetence. Right? That's the issue with Moses. He thinks that his incompetence is more important than God's omnipotence. He's saying, I know, God, that you're all powerful and you can do anything, but me, I'm broken. I'm really messed up. And I say all of that recognizing that's us. Like, think about it. We're those people all the time where God says, I want to use you in this way, and you have every reason why you're not usable. Like, Sorry, I'm too old. Sorry, I'm too broken. Sorry, I'm not in a good place. Sorry, my head's just not really there right now. Sorry, I got too much other stuff going on. Like, God, I know that you're all-powerful. I know that you're omniscient. I know that you're omnipotent. You can do anything you want, but you really shouldn't use me. Like, I'm just not, I'm not the right person. And this happens again and again and again. We see it in the New Testament, actually, with Jesus. Jesus comes to his disciples. You probably remember the story. And he says to his disciples, who, who do people say that I am? And they throw out all kinds of different answers. You're all these different kinds of prophets or whatever. And he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up on behalf of all of them. If you remember, he says, you are the Christ, which means anointed one. You are the Christ, the son of God. So he says, you are anointed by God, sent by God, and the essence of God himself. And and Jesus' response to Peter is, Peter, that's great. Like, this is revealed to you by God, not by man. Like, you got it. In fact, he he gives one of the highest commendations that you can give to something. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. Like, this is it. You got it, Peter. And then he says to his disciples, now that you got that, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to stand trial. I'm going to be killed. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. And in the middle of him saying it, Peter interrupts. And he's like, hold on, hold on. You don't go get what it means to be God. Let me, let me explain it to you. You're not doing it right. Right? Like, it's crazy. Like, you read through it and you're like, like, what in the world just happened? Like, Peter confessed, you are sent by God. You're God himself, anointed by God. And then he says, in two verses, sorry, you're doing it wrong. You, you don't know how to be God. Let me, exp- let me explain to you how to be God. But how often do we do that? The Moses story, the narrative of God calling Moses is not intended to highlight Moses. It's intended for us to recognize that God uses all kinds of broken and messed up people and that our excuses to not be used are really poor ones. You know that God's plan to disciple people, to reach people with the gospel, to minister to people, to love people, that his 
sole plan, only plan. He only has one plan to do that, and that's to use you. That's it. The church is it. It's plan A, B, C, and Z. It's all of it. God only desires to use the church to do it. And yet we say, well, but you don't know my stuff. You don't get it. Obedience through faith is what God is calling Moses to. Now that sounds like an incredibly high bar, and that's why we need to get to this really weird story that you were hoping I was going to skip because it's really, really strange. So let me read it for you, um, starting in verse 24. Um, so, so now Moses has interacted with Jethro, and now he's getting ready to head to Egypt as the deliverer that God has sent, right? So verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Whoa. That was a quick change, right? Anybody like whiplash there? Like, what just happened? Like, what in the world's going on here? And as you start to read through the story, um, the, the, there are commentators, uh, the greatest Old Testament scholars out there, who are constantly saying, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff about this story we don't understand. Like, this is a really, really complicated story that we don't fully get. And so I'm not going to pretend to explain all of it, but almost all commentators say the same thing. There's some stuff we know, and there's some stuff we don't know. So here's some things we don't know. Um, who does God want to kill? We don't know. We assume, most of us assume that it's Moses because we're just kind of reading through and, and the hymn seems to be Moses. But in, in Hebrew, it just says him. So it could be Moses. It could be Gershom, his firstborn son. Or it could be his second son, who we find out later that Moses has already had and is traveling with him. So he wants to kill some him. We, we don't know who. Um, we don't know how they know God wants to kill him. Like, does God show up with like a, a, a big black hood and red burning eyes and a sword? And he's like, ha ha, got you now. You know, like, I don't know. Maybe. It's, it's like, is he show up like Rambo? Do you guys even remember Rambo? Like, all the, never mind. Like, uh, how's he show, like, we, we don't know. Um, why does Zipporah step in and become the one who, uh, to follows through on the circumcision? We, we, we don't know. Some scholars think it's because Moses is literally just about dead, that God has struck him with some kind of a sickness and he's unable to move. Could be. We, have, we, we really don't know. When she circumcises her son and touches the foreskin to the feet, whose feet is it? It just says his feet. We, we don't really know. And uh, without getting too far into the details of the text, um, we actually don't know if those are feet because the Hebrew word for feet is also a euphemism for other body parts and this is a family service so we're not going to go there. But it's like, we don't know. There's some stuff we don't know. What we do know is God is really angry. Like he just showed up and wants to kill somebody. That's a big deal. We do know that it has something to do with circumcision. Because when Zipporah circumcises their son or sons, the anger of the Lord goes away. So we, we know that. And we know that Moses, now uh, decades into the life of his sons, has chosen not to raise his sons as Israelites. We don't know if he's raising them as Egyptians or if he's raising them as Midianites, but he's not raising them as Israelites because Israelites would have already been circumcised. And we know that God is really angry. This is a big deal to him. Why? Well, remember, this is volume two of a five-volume epic. So if you have read through volume one, you know that in Genesis chapter 17, God showed up to Abraham and God said to Abraham, the sign of the covenant 
that I will have with you for all generations is circumcision. So you and every male in Israel will be circumcised, and that's the sign of the covenant that I have with you. Now, for most of us, we don't have a perspective on covenant language. We don't talk a lot about covenant. Covenant's not really a a normal way of interacting for us. The, The perspective most of us have on covenant is marriage. We recognize that marriage is a covenant. Because we see them all the time, we tend to think of marriages as very romantic, and the language around marriage is very romantic. But you know, the, the covenant language that's used in marriage is not romantic. Like, bride and the groom are standing there, and they promise, one of the first things they promise one another is for better or for worse. So on the most important day of their life, where they have focused all this time, they've, they've, everything has kind of led up to this, the very first thing they say to one another is, this could go really bad. We should just say this up front. Like this, the, right now this feels good, but this could go sideways really quickly. And if it turns out that your nuts are on nuts, we're still going to stick with each other. Like we're, we're here, for better or for worse, we're, we're here, right? And they say, for richer or for poorer, like we're on a track towards something that looks good. But if we end up eating different flavors of ramen noodles every night of the week, we're going to still be with each other. It's okay. Like, yeah, college students cheering for ramen noodles. Like, yeah, I love that. I love that. That's right. So they're saying like, well, I mean, hopefully it gets better than that. But if it doesn't, like whatever, we're, we're, we're in. We're with each other for richer or for poorer. Uh, in sickness and in health is my favorite because I love to remind uh, brides and grooms who are typically like young and beautiful that they will not always be young and beautiful. That's a really important part of the wedding ceremony, right? Like um, you say in sickness and in health because at some point in time, you're gonna be older and distinctively less beautiful. That's the way that life works. Things sag. It's the way life goes. It's just, that's the way, where we are. It's the way way it is. And so like you you remind one another at the hour, you say like, uh, like, Right now I'm looking at you and I am just mystified by it. But at some point in time, I'm going to look at you and be mystified in a different way. Like that's going to happen. I know it's coming. And so I promise up front, right? So that's, that's covenant language. So what I'm saying is like you, you don't have to have the vitality that you have today for me to stay with you. you. You don't have to make me a lot of money for me to stay with you. You don't have to have everything be perfect for me to stay with you. I'm committing to you because I'm committed to you, not because of anything that you're bringing to me. That's the heart of covenant. And so when the people of God are in a covenant with God, they're making that same promise where they're saying to God, we're your people and you're going to be our God, not based on what you do for us, but based on who you are. And he is saying to them, you're going to be my people, not based on whether you obey me or not, but because you're my people. And there's a covenant sign, right? So in a wedding, wedding rings are exchanged. That's one of the covenant symbols. Well, in the, the covenant of God, circumcision is the covenant symbol. And it's something, without getting too explicit, that you're regularly remembering. You're, you're noticing. It's a, a noticeable part that reminds you, oh yeah, that's true. I'm part of the people of God. So what happened with Moses? Well, Moses, for whatever reason, has said, Abraham's covenant said that he would be, and the Israelites would be, your people. You would be with them. You would transform them. You would guide them. You would give them prosperity. You would give them a land. 
And maybe because Moses grew up after a couple hundred years of slavery, maybe because Moses grew up raised in an Egyptian home, maybe because he at a very formative time ended up in Midian, for whatever reason, when Moses' sons were born, he said, I still want blessing. I still want transformation. I still want prosperity. I still want the land. But I can do it on my own. I don't need you. The lack of the covenant sign was Moses saying to God, I got this. And so when God shows up, his anger towards Moses is not because he hasn't engaged in a ceremony. His anger towards Moses is, you think you have this still. After all this time, you still think you can do this. You can't do this. And Zipporah, thinking quickly, circumcises her son. And there's this statement you are now a bridegroom of blood to me. It's a, a reminder that there is under the blood in the covenant, away from the blood, outside of the blood, outside of the covenant. This is a foreshadowing to what will be the Passover that will happen in just a few chapters and a direct foreshadowing to Jesus shedding his blood for us on our behalf. What in the world does this mean for us today? We, I believe the majority of Exodus 4 is saying to us we need to be people who are obedient through faith to what God calls us to do. What happens when we're not? What happens when we're just too scared? Like, I'm just telling you, I, I'm straight up, like, I'm, I'm seeking to be your pastor. I'm seeking to be as honest as I can with you. If there's a snake on the ground and God says, grab it by the tail, I will not even be in the room anymore. Like, I'm done. I'm out. I don't mess with snakes. I don't mess with birds. I'm not interested. Like, if it, if it comes at me, I'm out. Like, I'm just, that's the way it is. And, and God may say, go grab that by the tail. And I'd be like, I'm like, somebody can grab it by the tail, but I'm not around, right? What happens when that happens to us? God says, pour it out. And you say, I, I know that you said to do it. And I know that you will probably come through, but you might not. And I'm a little nervous about it. Or maybe make it a little bit more uh, up to present time. What if God says, go talk to that person and tell them, pray for them, give them this thing, this resource. Go engage this person in this way. And you say, ooh, I don't know if that was God. I'm a little nervous. If, if I do that, what if God doesn't come through and we disobey? What happens? Well, if we're outside of the covenant, what the promise of Genesis 17 is ultimately, God says, if you don't circumcise your people, if they are not part of the covenant, they will be cut off from me forever. That's what God has just shown up to do with Moses. Cut him off forever. But when you have, God says, I, I know your heart. And I know your brokenness. And that's why Jesus came to fulfill the covenant. That's what the language of Jesus is not all new covenant language. It's fulfilling the old covenant and creating a new covenant. Um, Paul talks really explicitly about the idea of circumcision. And he says the, the New Testament expression of circumcision is no longer circumcision. But instead, there's a new covenant sign. It's in Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to just throw it on the screen for the sake of time. 
Uh, Paul says this, in him, this is Jesus, also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of this, but what Paul's saying is that the parallel sign in the new covenant, covenant is no longer circumcision, but now baptism. And there's an invitation into being the people of God by being baptized. What, what do we say in baptism? I, I'm dying to myself, and I'm rising again to Christ. The life of Christ now lived through me, Galatians chapter 2. I'm not saying that the moment of baptism makes you holier or more saved. I am saying that the symbol of baptism, the covenant sign, represents something that's true about you. And so, like, as we get back to the sanctuary, which is hopefully going to happen relatively soon, um, we're going to have a baptism service because we got a backlog of people who need to be baptized. Now, they're, they're not outside of the covenant right now, but it is vitally important for them to make that covenant sign, for them to be obedient to what God has called them to do and to say, I am going to follow Jesus in baptism. So we're going to have a big old rowdy fun party service. We're just going to, like, have a great time and recognize the goodness of God through that covenant sign. There are two covenant signs that God gives to his people, baptism and communion. And both of them are intended to point us back to this idea that God has provided for us what we can't provide for ourselves. See, the covenant connection that Israel was making with God was to say, we are not going to provide for ourselves all of this thing that we're seeking, but instead we're going to trust you to provide for us. When we're under the covenant of Jesus, what we're saying is, I'm not able to live the life that I'm supposed to live. And I am not worthy to die the death that needs to be died. And so therefore, I'm separated from God. But the covenant sign is that Jesus says, I lived the life that you're not able to live. And I died the death that you deserve to die. And I was raised again to life because the sacrifice was sufficient and I am now able to bring you to God. The covenant promise says that there's grace for our brokenness. The covenant promise says, I'm not trying to do it on my own, but I'm trusting him. And so every time we come back to the communion table, we're hearing the body of Jesus was broken for you. Your body deserved to be broken, but his body was broken. The blood of Christ is given for you. You cannot take your sins away, but he did. He's given himself for you. So no matter how you come and no matter how broken you are, we're reminding one another over and over again that this is what it means to follow him. I want you to hear this morning that God desires to disrupt you right where you are. He wants to use all of us in all kinds of different ways, for all kinds of different things. You are not excluded. You ha have not written yourself out of the story. You're not too old. You're not too young. You're not too broken. You're, you're not too busy. God wants to use you. And he wants to use you through obedience grounded in faith. He will constantly be telling us what we need to do. We simply need to follow and we need to learn to listen. And when we don't, we're his covenant people. He loves us. And he loves us because of what he has already given for us.
And so as we come to the table, I want to encourage you to remember that, to recite that, to hear it over and over again, and to remember the goodness of God in the midst of all of the brokenness of the world around us. And so uh, I'm going to ask those of you who are serving to go to your stations. There's going to be three stations, two in the front and one in this back corner over here. And I'm going to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to come and to receive this covenant sign, this reminder of the body of Jesus that was broken and the blood of Jesus that was shed and the hope that you have because of him. And as you do that, I want you to recount this idea that he has given himself for you. You don't have to get it right. But he wants to use you. You are his plan in the world around you. And so what's it look like to obey him, obedience grounded in faith? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm going to ask that you don't come to one of these stations. And the reason hopefully is clear by now, this is a covenant sign. And so if you're not a part of that covenant, I don't want you to enact the covenant sign just ceremonially. Um, a, a couple things. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, uh, there, there are going to be some prayers on the screen, and one of them is going to say, God, I want to know more. Help me to understand. And you're going to be able to observe as we go to these stations and receive these elements and practice this covenant sign. And it's a, a great opportunity for you to say, God, I want to know more. I want to understand. Like, show me what this looks like. And so if that's where you are, I want to encourage you to pray that way. The, the prayer on the screen is not magic words. It's just try to uh, direct your heart a little bit. And so I would encourage you to pray through that. But there'll be another prayer that will cycle on the screen, and that's the other thing I want to tell you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're, you're invited in. There is literally nothing that you could have done, nothing that you're in the process of doing that stands in the way of you being his. He has given himself for you fully and completely and so you're invited in, wherever you're at. And, and here's the thing. You're never going to get any better than this. And so you might as well step into it now. Like, you may clean some stuff up, but you're not going to be any more qualified than you are right this minute. And so you're invited to step in. You're invited to receive. And so if that's what you do, two things. One, you're welcome to go and receive these elements. It's a great celebration of the fact that you have begun to follow after him. But would you, at the very least... Tell somebody, whether it's me or somebody else, tell somebody. Because we're invited into a covenant community, not a covenant singularity. We're invited to connect with one another. We need one another. And so we need you and you need us, and that's part of the way that God's made this. And so we'd love to know so we can walk with you. Final thing I want to say is if you are a follower of Jesus... But you recognize in coming to the table, you've said you can be Lord of everything except for this. Like there's this area of my life that I'm holding on to and you can't have it. I don't mean that you're wrestling with obedience. We get that. We're all in the process of that. I mean that you have said you may not speak into this area of my life. If that's where you find yourself, can I just encourage you to not go to one of these stations but take advantage of this time? God's given you a moment right now to be able to ask the question, why is that? Why do I say, Adonai, I have a problem. I'm bigger than you are. Why is that? It's a great opportunity for us to wrestle together. And so that may mean that you're needing to have a conversation with somebody. It may mean that you need to journal a little bit. It may mean that you need to go take a phone call. And that's fine. This is your time for that. But the invitation is that you would come and to receive as you come to the table, a piece of bread will be dropped into your hands. You'll take a cup and you'll be able to eat. 
and drink. Remember, there are trash cans all around that you can use to dispose of those cups. The covenant love of God is for us, and you're invited in. I just want to pray for us, and then the team will lead us. We'll be able to uh, celebrate and rejoice as we receive uh, his covenant love that he's poured out for us. Jesus, thank you for your word to us. May we be people who live in obedience grounded in faith. May we be people who are willing to listen when you say, grab the snake by the tail, that we're willing to do it. Even if it doesn't make any sense, even if it doesn't seem to um, line up with our logic, would you teach us to obey? And so God, shape us, meet us at the table, and by your spirit, would you speak into our hearts? Thank you that you love us and that you're committed to us no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen.